Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. This is a special edition of Pardon Me, an extra, because sometimes we do these interviews and, you know, they're all, you know, they've got great stuff in them, but we can't use all of it because the way a Pardon Me works is we shoehorn a lot of material into a 49-minute spread. You don't care about that. All you care about is this is the full interview we recorded with Merriam-Webster's Peter Sokolowski, and it's like twice as long as what you could hear in the regular podcast version, so... So if you really want to, you know, take a deep dive, this is how you're going to do it. So as I might have mentioned before, I'm old enough to be a three-peacher, which is a term I'm going to try to get our guest Peter Sokolowski to put on his site. It's if you're old enough to remember the Nixon impeachment and to have covered the Clinton impeachment and then this impeachment, you're a three-peacher. And what I really remember was how much Watergate changed the language. I mean, Deep Six, Stonewall, Smoking Gun. Ron Ziegler, the press secretary, had this weird thing where he would describe things that had been said previously that were not true as inoperative. I think it might have been the first time that people talked, you know, in a, at least a fairly common widespread way about the laundering of money. So anyway, there were, all, there were all these language changes. And I think anytime the whole nation is focused on something, you get that. So we've asked our favorite lexicographer, a good friend of the show, Peter Sokolowski, who's editor at large, Merriam-Webster, a lexicographer, a musician, public radio jazz host at NEPR, and the author of a chapter of The Whole World in a Book. Welcome back to our show, Peter. It's great to be with you. Great to hear your voice. So before we plunge into the language of impeachment, we're having this conversation right around the time Merriam-Webster announces the word of the year. The word of the year does not really involve impeachment that much unless Lindsey Graham is about to make a big announcement about himself or something. So tell us, the word of the year is a pronoun, right? The word of the year is a, a very basic building block of the English language, the word they, which surprised me, to be honest. And in fact, many of the words that are looked up at our website, which is the statistical measure that we use to find our word of the year, we compare the words that are the top lookups of this year with the top lookups of last year to see which words moved in that uh, in that 12-month period. The reason we do that is that there's so much volume, there's so much interest in words on the dictionary website that year to year, the uh, basic words that are kind of like SAT test words are the top lookups, words like integrity and pragmatic and ubiquitous and conundrum and affect and effect. Those are the words that are looked up every year. So we want to find something that's different. And it turns out that this pronoun they is showing itself to be a little unstable in the English language, which is interesting for a language that's a thousand years old. And of course, it's got this new sense that is referring to non-binary people or people who do not wish to be referred to as he or she. And we suspect that many people who are encountering this use of the word they are going to the dictionary to check up on it, to see if it's in there, to find more nuance and detail about the language, which is really what the dictionary is for. Yeah, I remember, I mean, obviously, I've been watching this, tracking this for years, and there were sort of competing possible non-binary pronoun systems. I think Z-E was one of them for a while, which is going to win. But 
Well, the one that has sort of one, I think, is the most common one. I remember watching the Showtime series Billions, and they had a new character there who, on their first day of work, said, my name is so-and-so, and my pronouns are they, there, and them. And I think that's the first time I'd heard that phrase, you know, my pronouns are. It's pretty common now. I think that's really what's going on. It's interesting. I didn't know about that on the TV show, but it makes perfect sense. This is the year in which I was asked to add my preferred pronouns to a, an email signature, for example. This is the year in which at conferences I saw so many name tags that showed preferred pronouns and even little stickers that you could get when you registered. And this is the year in which I've seen so many people add this kind of information to their bios on Twitter, for example. It's really true that it's sort of familiarity breeds content in terms of language <laughs> use. And, and that gets back to your very correct notion that there are some proposed pronouns for this sort of non- gendered singular pronoun in a third person for English, like Z, or this one Thon, T-H-O-N, and I, I like that one because it was actually entered in Merriam-Webster's Unabridged Dictionary back in 1934 as a proposed third person neutral singular pronoun. And obviously they didn't catch on. I think this idea of familiarity with the word they is what is going to make it the one that sticks. Right. And, and I mean, it's also, it solves kind of a problem in language anyway, yeah. which is everybody was asked to name their favorite color, which isn't grammatically quite correct, but now you can just do it. But that's, you know, but that sentence you just said actually is organically correct in terms of English grammar. I mean, there's a tradition by which we prefer the, for example, for in the mid-20th century, in the early 20th century, the masculine singular was preferred when the gender was unknown of a person. Mm-hmm. And that has been falling away for a long time. And in fact, what you just used was what we would call the singular they, which is to say that we simply don't know whether the person is a he or a she. And the non-binary is this new sense of they in which the person actually prefers not to be known as a he or a she. And those are two very slightly different things. I will say in the case case of the sentence you just said, or another one like, you know, no one has to go if they don't want to, or mm-hmm. every, everybody likes pizza, don't they? That kind of use is so organic and so comfortable for most of us, at least in speech. And it goes back at least 600 years in English. So we're, we're not worried about that singular they. It's this new sense that is, a, you know, a little uncomfortable for a lot of people. But, you know, change in language is always uncomfortable when we notice it. All right. So the word of the year was they, but there were quite a few words and phrases that did seem to be kind of impeachment driven. We you start with quid pro quo, which is, you know, certainly a term that lots of people have used in lots of contexts for years and years. However, because of people like you, Peter, I learned something, which was if you had asked me prior to this particular iteration of quid pro quo where it came from, I would say that Cicero would be a really good bet because Cicero is a really good bet for almost any phrase that's kind of legalistic or government-oriented that's Latin that's worked its way into the language. But here, quid pro quo, using it the way we use it now is a, a much more recent thing than, I mean, Cicero would not have known what we were talking about if we tried to use it the way we've been using it lately. You know, that's an amazing part of language. It's true because Latin is an ancient language. We date this, we call it New Latin in our etymology. I think the Oxford English Dictionary has pushed it back a little bit. That might be called on the margin of what's late Latin. But anyway, this is Latin from far past the end of the Roman Empire. What we call New Latin is the Latin that's used mostly by scientists to name flowers and stars. And so it's using Latin words, using Latin parts to uh, create meanings that are contemporary. And in this case, like so much of our language about law, our legal language derives mostly from French, and Norman French, of course, derives directly from Latin. So there's a Latin 
Latinate base to almost all of legal language, including the word legal, the word language, but certainly the words arraignment and indictment and impeach and judge and jury and all the rest of it. And that's really, that's because of a little phenomenon in human history that the when the Normans conquered Britain, they imposed their system of laws on the Anglo-Saxon people. And that's why we use Latin vocabulary to describe the laws and the governmental systems in the English language. It's kind of an interesting mix of cultures. Quid pro quo, basically, we're talking about around the 16th century when this term came into use in this legal sense. And it's interesting for me because I've been watching these lookups in our data since, I don't know, around 2002 or so, when a legal term has a real specificity, a word like admonish, for example, when it's used in the Congress, when it seems to mean something really specific, that's when people go to the dictionary. And quid pro quo, of course, is not a term most people use every day. And so quid pro quo at one point seemed to mean, you know how you go to the a restaurant and the menu will say no substitutions? <laughs> yes, well, right. well, for a while, quid pro quo was a substitution. It might be, you know, Romeo and Juliet running off to the apothecary <laughs> and he doesn't have the thing they're asking for. So he gives them a quid pro quo. He gives them something that either might be pretty much the same thing they're asking for or maybe it isn't, and that's a problem. But that would have been a more common usage of that term, probably leading up to the change you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So this for that, basically, originally. And then now the way we use it is something for something. And that is, you know, something of value in return for a favor or for whatever action is done. And it's true that it moved from that apothecary use to this more generalized use, but it has this, again, this legal aspect. And that sent a lot of people to the dictionary. It's just like what you said about Watergate. Not only is the country getting a civics lesson, we're getting a vocabulary lesson. Right. So, you know, there are ways in which common vocabulary words then acquire specificity at specific moments. And I would say that's kind of the story with impeach. I mean, impeach, if you think about it, like one place in conversation it might turn up in an ordinary year is he's a person of unimpeachable character. When they say that, they're not referring to the idea that you couldn't remove him from office by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. They're, <laughs> they're, they're using impeach in its much more day-to-day, year-to-year sense, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is a word that means irreproachable in that sense, you know, Mm -hmm. someone whose virtue is beyond doubt. And this is an interesting word that comes from the French. And if you know modern French, empêcher is simply the word that means to impede or to stop. It has the same exact Latin root as the English word impede. So literally, impeach means impede. It just means to halt, to stop, to bring to a stop in a literal sense. And that's an interesting point about this word in particular, which is that many people, if you learn this word just by by usage, just by seeing it in the headlines, just by hearing it, you know, in, in the NPR headline news, for example, you might think that it meant to remove from office, but it doesn't. You know, it, it, that's not what it actually means. It simply means to charge with a crime, you know, and or to charge, especially a public official with misconduct, and that's different from removal. And the thing is, they've kind of been collapsed. And I think this is parallel to the fact that many people consider Nixon to have been impeached, whereas that's just a technicality. Of course, he actually wasn't because he resigned before that could happen. Right. It's a really good point that if people understood the word better in the first place, they probably wouldn't have done that accidental collapsing of the two concepts. The impeaching is effectively to introduce a series of charges against a person's character or behavior, you know, and then the trial and the either acquittal or removal is separate. Well, if you understood what impeach was in the first place, it would be easier to maintain that distinction. And 
it's really hard to, you know, I mean, in this case, this is a case where the etymological meaning of the word is actually closer to the legal meaning, to the way it's being used by the newsmakers, and yet it's being, I think, interpreted by so many in this much broader sense and much more final, you know, to remove from office kind of sense. And that does add to the confusion and the tension around the moment. So one of the things that I think that you experience as a lexicographer, and particularly at a lexicographer where you are, is that when the stakes of what a word mean rise, then people really want to know what the word means. So, for example, in his July testimony, Robert Mueller said the president was not exculpated for the acts that he allegedly committed, and you had a 23,000% increase in lookups. So talk a little bit about that word, and why why are people looking it up? And here's a classic case. First of all, he presented himself with a very technical kind of legalistic language, and that's what this word is. Mm. It's not a word, again, not a word that we use every day. It's got a, you know, an important root, you know, culpa, meaning to blame, or meaning blame, I should say, in Latin, and that's the root of our word culpable, which again is this other sort of interesting Latin word. It's funny that we have so many Anglo-Saxon words and Latin words that are kind of parallel in meaning, that sort of overlap in meaning, like guilt. We've got this idea of guilt, which is an old English word, and then culpable, which immediately brings to mind a courtroom you know, mm-hmm. uh, or a legal kind of language. And there are so many of these doublets, and, and this is just a kind of parenthesis, but we think of these doublets in English common law that have come down to us that are doubled for this reason because they include words that have both uh, Anglo-Saxon and Latin roots. So think of crimes and misdemeanors, uh, breaking and entering, um, and even salaries and emoluments. They're, these are f- these were legalistic doublets that were done because most of the written legal language was this Latin-based language, and most of the common language that would be understood uh, every day by people was the Old English. And it's just interesting that English has absorbed these you know kind of double words in so many cases. But exculpate to remove guilt, basically. Ex means to remove, and culpa guilt. Right. And I would say also that in the case of some Latin words, probably certain, especially Latin words associated with guilt, there's also the crossover between into church Latin. So oh, yeah. uh, obviously, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Perfect. So yeah, if you brought up Catholic, you already know pretty much what the root is. You might even be able to figure out what exculpate means. It's really interesting to think how much is lost by having no Latin in our daily lives. For me, French was sort of my poor man's Latin because most of those words have the same roots. And they, they help explains so much about English. It's just interesting how you get this extra dimension about the language when you have a background in in the classical languages. But let's take another Latinate word because I think this is an interesting one because even though it would be a word that I would be comfortable using as I think about it now and I see the work that you guys have done on it, I realize I maybe didn't 100% understand it. And that's the word insidious. So Gordon Sondland used it in his testimony to describe President Trump's attempts to coerce Ukraine into investigating the Bidens, and he described that as insidious. Mm. So that has a specific meaning, and its meaning is pinned to its Latin origin. Yeah, I mean, this idea of awaiting a chance to entrap somebody, you know, that you're kind of ambushing, which is the Latin, you know, the Latin root means to ambush. And in this case, of course, it's more figurative than literal. We're we're talking about something that sort of sneaks into a situation, which is the medical sense when you think of an insidious infection, for example, that is something that came in along with you know, some other treatment. And I think in this case, because it was cued by the Sondland testimony, it proves to us really how much people are paying attention to this process. We see the lookups that reflect the impeachment inquiry and the hearings and then the vote. And it actually is 
a really good feeling from my perspective because I think people are using the dictionary more now than ever, partly because we all carry a dictionary in our pockets on a smartphone and partly because you can be watching TV or you can be listening and you can look something up while you are actually taking in the information in real time. And that then gives us the data to recognize that this spike occurs in a moment in time when this man was speaking. We knew that people were really paying attention just as they did to Mueller when he used the word exculpate. Yeah, and I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think also there's, you know, we've talked about this before. For kind of in, in the Orwell sense, if you understand the way the word is being used or misused, you understand a lot more about the situation. And the person who controls the meanings of words often get an exercise control over, over how we interpret situations. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that gets kind of to the heart of where we are. I mean, I think we are living in a moment with a kind of crisis of meaning. And the crisis of meaning goes back to ideas of fake news or alternative facts and two sides that are sort of talking past each other. I like to think of the dictionary as maybe the greatest evidence of human consensus that, <laughs> that we have. And what I mean by that is that millions of people over a thousand years have decided that a certain sequence of sounds mean a very particular thing and it allows us to speak to strangers. And that's the most basic level of language. And so the consensus, the evidence of that consensus is what we present in the dictionary. That is to say, most people use this word to mean this particular thing. And if we don't agree on that basic meaning, getting to your point, if we don't actually on both sides agree on the basic uh, premise of the basic words that we use, then the tools that we're using will, will never work to connect us. And, and that, that's a really important factor. I just want to say, Peter, you clearly never met my parents who used to actually have fights about what was in the dictionary. <laughs> like they'd read the dictionary entry and then they'd fight about that. All right. So one last thing. I think it was during the judiciary testimony, things got a little animalistic. First of all, you had people complaining about other people badgering the witness. But <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about that one. I'm going to ask you about subsequently, there were claims that this was a kangaroo court. Yeah. Uh, so we get the badgers, we get the kangaroos. I mean, who knows what could happen? They could start fighting each other. And I've never really quite understood where that term comes from. I know what its connotations are. I know what it's loaded up with. But maybe nobody apparently knows what where a kangaroo court comes from. Yeah, this is one of those. It's, it's kind of a mystery. I mean, you'd think it maybe goes back to Australia in some way. And of course, the animal does. What we can prove is that in the United States, it goes back to that time around the California gold rush. And really, the issue in some way has to do with the fact that those territories were not states yet in, in many cases. And so there wasn't an official court. There wasn't a real authority. And if you've ever seen Deadwood, you know that that was a major plot point is that becoming a territory and then a state would have very specific sort of bureaucratic and legal ramifications. So the fact is, when you wanted some kind of legal redress, for example, your claim, your claim to a piece of land that you were mining, it would be very difficult to have an official government court, a federal court, for example. And that's when when this term began to be used, that's when we have the first written evidence of it. So kangaroo court was used for this unofficial, maybe disreputable kind of legal or parallel to legal system. And, you know, there are so many mysteries to the English language. A lot of people think language is like math that will always know the ultimate origin, especially after talking about Latin as the building block language for so much of legal language in English. It's interesting to think of so many other terms that we just don't know. They're lost to the mists of time. 
All right. So I said that was the last question, but I didn't really mean it because, in fact, the other thing that's almost as important as an impeachment process is the release of any new Star Wars related uh, <laughs> uh, product. And so I know one of the things you've been looking at is a term that comes up. It's come up in previous versions of Star Wars, but right now because of the Mandalorian, which is not in the dictionary probably, by the way, but <laughs> the Mandalorian is a bounty hunter. So tell us what you've discovered about that term. This is one of those things that just kind of came organically. It always struck me as odd that there's a famous movie from the mid-50s called The Bounty Hunter. There was a novel. And as a character in the Star Wars films, there's Boba Fett and others in, from The Empire Strikes Back, which is early 1980s. And the idea of a bounty hunter was clearly this sort of, and obviously, the, you know, Rooster Cogburn and True Grit and the Clint Eastwood character, the man without a name. These are bounty hunters. And so I thought this is a clear Old West term. This is from the great American West and part of our mythology. Well, it turns out, I was intrigued to see that we only date the term bounty hunter to like the 1930s or so. And I thought, well, that's got to be wrong by about 60 years. And it turns out that there's no written record of anyone in the Old West being referred to as a bounty hunter. And the word bounty comes again from Latin, from bon, bonus. The same word is bonus. And it turns out that the first bounty hunters, when that term was used in the 19th century, it meant bonus hunter. In other words, it meant soldiers who signed up for the Union Army and got paid a sum of money as a reward simply for signing up. And that's very different from, you know, chasing bad guys into the wilderness. And the other use of the term was often used for hunters, for people who would bring back the skins of wild animals or who would bring back dead birds of prey, for example, for claim of a bonus or a bounty or a reward. And so it really meant reward hunter or bonus hunter. And it wasn't until, the you know, into the 20th century that it was used in the way that we use it today to refer to some kind of a tough guy who's uh, kind of a vigilant vigilante. And it's just interesting to me to think that our perception of language is often rooted in the present, even though we have sort of ascribed a 19th century quality to this term. That's really our own sort of lack of clarity. We just didn't know that that word wasn't used, although bounty hunter sounds so much cooler than bonus hunter. Right. So it turns out Cicero never said quid pro quo. And exactly. while Bill Cody never said bounty hunter. It's a linguistic myopia. All right. That's, that's a great place to end then. Peter Sokolowski, lexicographer editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster, also a musician, public radio jazz host at NEPR. Thanks for joining us today. It's a treat to talk to you, as always. 